Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Beyond the Black Stone by Paul Draper Swift from infinity, the enormous fear that lives between the stars clutched with the cold great darkness at my heart. Then from the gulf arose a whispering. A Dream of the Abyss by Clark Ashton Smith 1. The Dark Tourist in case this tape is eventually found, here is the complete story. It seems I have some time, so I'll lay it out in as much detail as I can. I am, and I was, what is known as a dark tourist. I am well educated, and due to inheritance, comfortably funded. But the triviality of the modern world left me cold. Nothing touched my heart in the day-to-day -day banality of template life. There had to be more. Like many others with casual time on their hands, I tried to find this more in excess. I mined for it in drink and narcotics, physical ecstasy and vice. Only in adventure did I come close to finding the otherness I desired, which was a connection to something beyond, the space behind the veil that had been hinted at in the febrility of many opium nights. I was physically sound, despite my iniquities, and young enough to have faith that this frame would carry me through jeopardy. I challenged my body with extreme sport, running, swimming, driving, and sailing in the most testing conditions. I will say that being a close friend of mortal peril gave me a certain insight into the wider universe beyond humdrum life. It is akin to being familiar with a high fence that can be scaled, but only peered over once and then never again. I was neither despairing nor insane enough to want to cross into oblivion, so instead I became a dark tourist. I travelled to places associated with death and suffering, to feel the echoes of those who have taken that last journey. During my first trips I made a discovery— I would not describe myself as psychic or clairvoyant, but I do have a certain sensitivity to dark places. I can feel things. I have stood in the rubble of ruined Polish gas chambers and felt my eardrums tremble to faint, decades-old horror. I have walked around an abandoned Ukrainian town with a Geiger counter gently clicking on my lapel and physically sensed the anguish of those who fled. I have been in the killing fields of Chiangek and Mandor, and felt past harrowing rising from the land. Volcanoes, collapsed mines, tsunami-cleansed coasts, bomb sites, and war graves. They all carry scintillas of the energy I look for, a glimpse of truths the world would prefer to be distracted from. I am not ashamed to say it became an addiction— I searched for ever more obscure destinations, and as I visited them, my accompanying tourists thinned out. I was happy about this, as people often obscure sensation, like streetlights pollute the visibility of stars. The lady that I saw near the Casacauba house of Dominican dictator Rafael Molina was my kind of tourist. 
a silent figure moving from room to room in the ruins and absorbing the energy of the worst of that monster's excesses. We didn't say hello, nor even meet each other's gaze. We took what we wanted into our core, then went our separate ways. Not ghouls, just spirits seeking truth. I eventually ran out of conventional guidebooks, so turned to more obscure tomes. I read Alexandra Perrier's Disillusion of Sinners, Abraham's Book of Abramel in the Mage, Cult de Ghouls by the Comte de Lett, and some of what remains of notes on the unfathomably ancient narcotic manuscripts in a basement in Cairo, all the while watched by a nervous curator, who an intermediary had paid to unlock the room for thirty minutes. On each occasion I tried to glean locations to visit, to find remote, dark punctuation marks on the surface of a cluttered earth. The book that genuinely gripped me, however, was a contraband translation of the Anausbrechlichen Kulten by Friedrich von Janst. The author, said the bookseller, was a German eccentric who died in more hideous circumstances in the middle of the nineteenth century, his throat inexplicably torn out in a room bolted from the inside. The book, the title of which is Unspeakable or Nameless Cults in English, and bearing the publisher credit Bridewall, 1845, seemed to have various omissions and inconsistent cuts, but much of the original content was comprehensible. Of great supplementary interest in this copy was a carefully handwritten insert, which appeared to list some of the missing material in the edited book. Importantly to me, these notes listed places, a prehistoric province called Kanar, now lost beneath the Pacific Ocean, a Honduran temple venerating something like a toad, various Pictish sites founded by a king named Bran, and other occult locations around the world, long forgotten to general culture. There were further small annotations alongside the notes, and carefully drawn images that did not seem directly linked to any text. Circles, perhaps stars and planets, various animalistic representations, and what looked like uh, keys or tools. One that particularly fascinated me was a monument in the Hungarian mountains, an obscure monolith near a village labelled Stragoikovar. The site was noted to be reviled by locals in the area. I am adept at research, and spent a week in the British Library trying to get more information on the relic, but could not find any further information. My interest was piqued, and with no other trips planned, I booked a flight to Hungary. 2. The Black Stone The plane landed in Debrecen, and I took public transport as far as Miskwalt's Tizay. My destination was to the west, in the Buk Mountains, a heavily forested offshoot of the Carpathian Range. The taxi ride was largely silent. My driver knew little English, and I had limited Hungarian. When I mentioned Stragoikovar, he just frowned and shook his head as he started the engine. The journey took just over two hours, and eventually we climbed to a drop-off point, the driver being reluctant to enter the village. As his taillights disappeared over the rise, I looked up at what my crude map showed was the peak of Keto's Beards. It loomed ominously against the afternoon sky, hunched and silent, 
smothered in a blanket of Austrian oak. The air was heavy, and the fading day leaden. I made my way on foot the further half-mile to the settlement. I booked into an inn, and dined by the small bar as daylight crept away outside the window. Whilst nowhere near drinking the same volumes I could in younger years, I still had a beer or three before an amiable local introduced me to something he called palinka, a strong little shot poured from a narrow bottle, with a hint of fruit amidst the fire. His English was good, and he introduced himself as Balage. We chatted, and eventually the conversation turned to the monolith I had come to see. His eyebrows raised, and he let out a grim laugh. "'The black stone? Yes, it's there,' he said, waving vaguely at the window. "'No one goes near it from around here. It's—' He struggled to find a word. "'Dangerous?' I said. "'Shit,' he replied. "'It's just a lump of stone someone put there a long time ago. Nothing to see.' He leaned across and poured more drink into my glass. "'Hey, Tomash, he's here for the stone.' This was directed woozily at the landlord, who rested his hands on the bar thoughtfully. "'We haven't had a visitor looking for that for some time,' said Tomash in a deep baritone. "'No good comes from that place.' "'Ah, all nonsense,' slurred Balash. I asked my companion if he could show me where the stone was, but he gazed sorrowfully at me. "'Alas,' he slurred, "'I have drunk enough to be less than sure where the toilet is.' let alone anything outside these walls. Tomorrow, my friend, tomorrow. With that, he clamped a hand on my shoulder, rose, then stumbled away. Once in my room, I slept relatively comfortably, and, as dawn filtered through my unshuttered window, descended to a simple breakfast. On stepping out of the front door of the inn, I saw Balage on the other side of the road, looking as fresh as anyone who regularly sinks that much palinker and still needs to function. Yes, he would show me where the stone was, he said, but first his grandmother wanted to meet me. He led me through narrow cobbled streets of this little village locked in time, and eventually came across a small, gaily shuttered house by a bakery. It was open-gabled, and a tall chimney topped the sloping blue-tiled roof. Balage's grandmother was a small, wiry woman, and introduced herself as Ermuska. Her complexion suggested at least eighty years, but her eyes shone with the energy of one much younger. The scent of goulash filled the living space, and she served a small bowl which steamed in my hands as she settled on the other side of the table, gazing at me. She let forth a stream of Hungarian, which Balage translated— why do you wish to visit the stone? Nobody has gone there for many years. It is of interest in my studies, I replied. Look around my house. This is a traditional Hungarian home, full of joy. That place is not of this culture. But the stone is here, I said. It must be part of the land. She explained her ancestors had moved up to this area after Turkish invaders slaughtered the original inhabitants of the mountain long ago. Both her forebears of the lower lands and the Turks had reviled the queer indigenous inhabitants before Suleiman's invaders were driven out of the region. Those original mountain folk were physically distinctive, and considered uh, subhuman, 
But, as the old woman said, modern thought accepted that they were just different. It takes many types of people to live in this world, Balash translated. If only we could accept differences, there would be fewer wars. That said, she continued, the revulsion at that time stemmed from blasphemous practices and rituals adopted by those mountain people, and they indulged in activities that would shock and disgust the modern mind. This resulted from their hermetic, ungodly isolation, rather than their blood. The stone was something they used for these practices, like an altar, although local law says the structure predated even those insular folk. She gazed into my eyes and saw my resolve. She spoke again to Balash. At least it's not midsummer, she says. If you must go, he said, at least take some turos. He smiled at my incomprehension. It's cake. Trust me, you'll want some. Once outside, Balash made me pledge to see him again at the inn that night, and pointed up the mountainside to where fir trees swathed the incline. You see that bare cliff face? Through the woods beyond lies the stone. Be careful. Some of the climb is loose. The route up was an exertion, but not unmanageable. I thanked my natural fitness as I reached the base of the cliff, and, with steady progress on sought-out hand and footholds, climbed to the top. I rested for a few moments, and then entered the dark, dense firs, noting the still air that the shielding cover of the cliff provided. The conifer canopy blocked much of the daylight, but the route seemed clear enough. Eventually, I emerged into a glade clothed in short grass, and found a flat stone to sit on. As I ate a muska's cake, which was indeed delicious, I looked at the monolith. It was perfectly perpendicular to the ground, the height of three men, and slightly pitted in the lower half, as if damaged by tools, or maybe scarred by the weather. On closer inspection, strange hieroglyphics wound in a spiral from the base to the top. The spacing was an exactly proportioned helix, combined with the sculpted overall shape a purposeful intelligence had once been at work in creating this object. As I have said, I have a sensitivity. Prior to my encounter with this strange stone high in the Book Mountains, this feeling had revealed itself as an attunement to a certain energy. I find it hard to describe, but it's as though I can feel the vibrations of something dark that has passed— like a ripple reaching a lake shore from the doom of an insect gulped by a fish. It's not quite hearing, not quite seeing, but some uh, other outer sense that appears to me to be additional to the known five, relied on by humankind. It's a tremble in the air, not strong enough to have regarded it as even a gift. As my hand connected with the cool surface— I experienced a violent reaction. The sunny day dimmed, and nausea swept over me. Something unseen and indefinable plunged down from above, from beyond the scattered finches and single bustard wheeling in the air, higher than the slowly drifting Carpathian clouds, farther than the sky itself, and maybe even space. This essence was ancient and cold— not in temperature, but in intent. 
As much as I was feeling and somehow seeing this shower of callous energy, an overwhelming sense of sentience felt and saw me. I tried to withdraw my hand, but it was held there as if by a clamp, and as I stayed trapped in the stance, something studied me. The black of the stone became darkly translucent, and the hieroglyphic slowly animated, crawling yet staying stationary at the same time. They pulsed, almost imperceptibly, and still this feeling of being watched, by something enormous, something larger than the landscape itself. That sensation of being scrutinized started to sharpen and localize. I saw nothing specific— but felt as if a horizon-wide observer was shrinking, yet becoming more intense and focusing itself into the monolith in front of me. I slowly looked up, for no quicker pace was possible in this hampered state of being, to the top of the column. But first, there was nothing obvious there, yet something formed. The air at the peak of the structure seemed to divide and transform into two faintly glowing circles. A line appeared across the horizontal plane of both orbs, and that, in turn, split slightly, just like a pair of sleepy, opening eyelids. I fell back and blacked out. Three, The Dreams When I recovered consciousness, the sun had moved lower in the sky— and the day had reverted to apparent normality. I propped myself up on my elbows and looked at the top of the monolith. Its shape cleaved the sky as expected, but other than the structure's incongruity in this landscape, all seemed as it should be in this elevated glade. It felt suddenly sensible to be away from this place. I returned to the cliff face and slowly picked my way back down to the village. Twilight was in evidence around the inn as I returned to my room. I felt spacey, slightly abstracted from normal. I rested for an hour and wrote in my journal. Then, feeling a little restored, I headed downstairs to dine. I was happy to see Balage when he arrived. He asked briefly about my expedition to the stone, but I could see it was of little interest once the ale flowed. He was one of those in-the-moment types who lived for the energy in a room. I did my best to engage with his good humour, but something was indeed different. I felt as if on the edge of illness, or perhaps that state when one has slept too much and feels as if they are just outside their own body. As the old clock behind the bar turned past ten, I made my farewells for the night and retired to my room, to what I expected to be solid sleep. I did not know at that point that I would not sleep easily again. The first night after the stone brimmed with terrors. I dreamt of brooding plains, caverns, and a blackness of night far deeper than any mere absence of light. I dreamt of monstrous thickets blocking dank, choked tunnels, and my mind's eye flew high above stalactited crypts that seethed with apparent shapes writhing far below. Above all was a sensation of a crushing, freezing void, a certainty that this place was one that I should not be able to see. In the morning, foggy from a disturbed night, 
I breakfasted and planned to leave Strogoikovar. As a dark tourist, I had done what I had come here to do, soak up the sensation of a place that was awry, but also had my first unexpected experience in doing so. My sensitivity usually manifests in a hyper-awareness of forlorn past echoes, a kind of comforting greyness as something inside me reaches across time to understand mortal pain. At the Blackstone, however, this innate attribute of mine enabled something far more visceral, far more in the present, something I was not passive in engaging with. I bade a final good-bye to Balage and her musker at their house, the former giving a cheery wave as if I would see him next week, the latter just raising a single hand in front of oddly sad eyes, and made my way via return taxi to the airport and back to England. From London, I travelled east to my home in the coastal lowlands, determined to rest and write up my Hungarian experience. I spent my days in the same slightly numbed state that had followed me from Europe across the Strait of Dover, but the nights were the worst part of it. Again they were haunted. Unlike normal dreaming, which to me had always felt an unconnected assortment of visions and sounds from general participation in the world, these nighttime reveries attacked my sleep with intent and purpose— and it was hard not to feel there was something more at work than merely processing my waking stimuli. Again the plains, this time seen in more detail as a rusty red earth blew across them. Again those gloomy caverns that seemed to lurk below the scarlet barrens, but more this time. I saw a vast landscape of grey soil, divided by a decrepit highway that led to a black bridge hewn from rock. Something partially shrouded the space beyond the crossing. A bluish fog, but what looked like a vast mountain loomed farther on, its shape just discernible through the mist. Night after night in my quiet East Anglian cottage, these scenes returned to me. I tried to write about them, to draw them, even to model them in clay, hoping to process it out of my system. But still the vistas hounded my small hours. Despite their vividness, they evaporated swiftly come dawn, like dreams usually do, leaving me unsettled and aloof for the day. I became insular and surly, so much so that my neighbours took to checking on me regularly. I felt tormented by an unknown landscape and Beyond it all, a sense that the visions were connected with my time in Hungary. I took to writing notes in a small pad on waking, to capture the details before they evaporated. The clue to the location of these visions, if indeed they were not purely fantastical, felt to me to be at the start of each cursed nocturnal showreel. The dusty red landscape seemed more earthly than the scenes beyond the caverns. I could discern the sky, and the occasional human-made fence or road, before the dream sight plunged down to those alien spaces. Then, one night, I saw a notable high-wire fence in the red landscape, beyond which was what looked to be a small hill covered in scrub. By the fence was a road. For a week this place featured, along with a new sensation— 
a low, gurgling, guttural rumble. The noise was both enveloping yet utterly horrific, like warm quicksand, enclosing and stifling. The dream that gave me a telling clue and led me to this fateful place was in the third month of my return to England. The fence had a sign on it, which clearly read in large capitals, Forbidden Area, Keep Out, and underneath, by order of Caddo County Sheriff's Office. I looked the area up, then booked a flight to Oklahoma City on waking. 4. Caddo County The journey was about ten hours long, and small bursts of sleep came to me aboard the plane. It felt as if my sensitivity was now unbridled, and whereas before it had been triggered in short, emphatic bursts during my tourism, a channel was now permanently open between my mind and whatever this was I was heading towards. I even started experiencing some of the ghastly images during my waking hours, in brief blinks, as if my slumber could not contain all that I was meant to see. On landing in Oklahoma City, I hired a car and drove fifty miles to Anadarko, a small city in the seat of Caddo County. At the visitor center, I described the place I was looking for, a fenced-off area with red soil and small hills or mounds. The lady at the center suggested I was looking for the tiny town of Binga, less than half an hour to the north, but, she said, there wasn't much there. She was right, I thought, as I drove past the rusted town sign into the center of Binga. The settlement was untidy, and had a certain feeling of abandonment, despite the sunny pamphlet the lady at the visitor center had given me, saying that six hundred residents happily lived there. I booked into a guest house run by a kindly-looking woman, and showered off the travel before a light meal and retiring to bed. I cannot do justice to the appalling tumult of visions that came to me that night. A conception of a series of hills that gave way to a kaleidoscope of blue, red, and black, and a sense of something horrifically wrong with the fabric of everything. Somewhere amongst the colours flashed up impressions of what appeared to be people, but rent into abhorrent shapes and with vital parts of their anatomy either missing or replaced with metal. Probably for the protection of my sanity, sharper details seemed to evaporate, as I awoke in darkness to a hammering at the bedroom door. My mouth was wide open, gasping for air. After a moment to gather my sensibilities and wipe the sweat from my face, I rose to find the agitated owner of the guesthouse outside, desperate to know what was wrong, as she had heard screaming. I mumbled something about a nightmare, and, heart still racing, accepted her invite to the kitchen for some calming cocoa. We sat together at her sturdy oak table in the kitchen. After preparing a couple of drinks, she introduced herself as Haley Compton. Her husband was in the forces and away on tour, so she was running the guesthouse by herself for the time being. I was still shaken from the horrors of sleep, so I found it calming to chat pleasantries, until she asked me if I'd like to talk about the nightmare. I hesitated, 
and then described as much as I could, albeit leaving out the elements of mutilation. "'Ah, the mounds,' she said in her soft Midwestern accent, after listening to me describe the initial places I'd seen. "'Mounds?' I replied. "'Yeah, there are some mounds near here which some of the Wichita folks say are cursed. Red soil with rock and scrub? That sounds like them. My husband's granddaddy Clyde was full of tales of them things, as told by his mother. They're all fenced off now. Some sort of health and safety thing by the county.' It transpired that the mounds had been the site of many allegedly supernatural goings-on in the first half of the twentieth century. Mrs. Compton told me of people disappearing, or going lost around there for days before returning, quite altered in demeanour. About ten years ago, they had placed a long metal fence around the zone, running for many miles. This had to be the barrier I saw in my visions in England." We spoke for a while longer, then finished our drinks, and I returned, somewhat calmer, to bed. I was keen to visit the mounds, a short drive to the west, and only dozed lightly and dreamlessly until dawn. I breakfasted on the laid-out provisions, tucked some away in my rucksack, borrowed some simple tools from the guesthouse, and drove west. The road was quiet and straight with flat red plains on either side, and before long the fence came into view at a junction. The signage on it was identical to that I'd seen in my dreams. I took a right, and followed alongside the enclosure, shortly coming across a gate which led beyond to a new-looking set of modular buildings, with no sign or frontage. Several impressive-looking four-by-four SUVs were parked out the front— Standing outside the entrance were two men chatting in dark suits. They didn't look friendly, and as I waited in the idling car by the gate, advanced towards me. I did not feel welcome, so you turned the rental and drove back in the direction I'd come from. In the rearview mirror, I could see the men staring at me through the fence before I drove from view. I arrived back at the intersection and continued on, this time taking the other route from the T-junction, which, to my estimation, was south. Barely a mile in this direction, I saw a large mound to my right, beyond the barrier. I parked the car, and, with some effort using the bonnet as a platform, scaled the fence to drop to the other side. Mrs. Compton had told me that the mounds were quite numerous in the western part of the county— and were probably prehistoric burial or tribute sites rather than natural geology. The modern-day Wichita peoples did not seem to hold them in any reverence, instead shunning contact with them prior to this official enclosure cutting them off from public access. Before long, I reached the mound I'd seen from the road, and now perceived other similar structures further into the distance. The nearest one had a steep slope, but with some effort I scrambled up the flank, pushing aside the shrubbery and thick grass on the ascent. The hairs on my neck prickled as I climbed, but I couldn't tell if it was a mere anticipation of a sensory experience or a genuine influence of the place. I was ill-equipped to dig far, having only taken a small trowel and gardening fork from my lodgings in Binga, but I felt compelled to do so. 
I cannot say why the urge overtook me. I just felt that there was something here. I scraped and clawed at the red soil, and with some effort cut through some hardy roots near the surface to reach cool earth underneath. I cannot say how long I burrowed for, because I have little memory of it now, except to say that the compulsion to continue grew stronger the further down I cleared. The day grew dim around me. I must have dug until the point of exhaustion took hold, and then, laying atop that small hill in the balmy Caddo County evening, I must have slept. 5. THE RESEARCH CENTER I came to on a simple bed in a featureless, grey-walled room without windows. Soft, artificial light spread from fixtures high on the walls. I had the emergent feeling of waking from sleep, and yet felt exhausted. Was this a hospital? I lay there, depleted for a couple of minutes. Then a door in the far wall opened, and a woman walked in. She was about thirty, dressed in smart business attire, with brown hair trimmed into a neat bob. "'Ah, you're awake,' she said. "'I'm Miranda. Would you like some water?' My croaked affirmative response illustrated my parched throat. She disappeared, before returning with a jug and glass, setting them down on a small table by the bed. "'You can rest for now. Dr. Hurst will see you shortly,' said Miranda, before exiting again. So it was a hospital, I thought. I drank a much-needed draught of water, noticing how dirty my hands and fingernails were, then lay back down on the bed. As my back settled on the mattress, I noticed bruising along the length of it. Miranda collected me, and took me out into the foyer that is next to the room I'm now recording in. I noticed the two men I'd seen through the fence gate were there, and realized I must be inside the modular building complex I'd parked by. I can now barely look through the glass window at that central space after what has happened in the last hour. What state this place will be in if anyone finds this tape is anyone's guess. Anyway, I must finish my account. They brought me here and sat me at the desk by this tape machine. A lady in her fifties entered with some papers and a tablet, and introduced herself as Dr. Claire Hurst. She explained I was in a government research installation, and that a routine patrol had found me atop a mound within the prohibited zone. She asked why I had been inside the fence, and pursed her lips when I struggled to explain myself. I didn't feel comfortable telling her that visions had brought me here from England. "'Am I under arrest?' I asked. "'No, no, not at all,' she replied with a smile. "'Can I play you something?' She brought out the tablet. "'We recorded this when we found you.' I shrugged, glad to be off the subject of my reason for being here. She played a grainy video. A body cam showed me laying in the red dirt in fading twilight, lit by a couple of flashlight beams, writhing, bellowing. She looked up and our eyes met, her assessing my obvious shock. I looked back at the clip. In it my hands were hammering on the soil of the mound as I thrashed about on my back, and the cause of those bruises became clear. As patrolmen circled around me, 
one radioing in to tell the centre of the scene, I was yelling garbled words. The only ones I could pick out on the audio were Yig, Canyon, Black, and Eyes. They restrained me, still apparently asleep, and the camera followed behind three patrolmen carrying me, wriggling, to a nearby car. The video ended. Dr. Hurst withdrew the tablet and leaned on the desk. "'Do you remember any of that?' she asked. "'No, sorry, it's blank. Do you know what those words mean?' I shook my head. She probed further, and eventually I described the visions I'd seen. Instead of dismissing them, she asked carefully about when they started, so I told her of my trip to Hungary. She slid the tablet back and scrolled the video to a particular time code, a point that I yelled, Canyon, repeatedly. What do you think this means? She said. Canyon? Uh, Some sort of geology? She pursed her lips. We have been here for ten years, conducting ultrasound research into the subterranean area around Caddo County, as well as several miles to the north and west of here. What I'd like to tell you is of the utmost confidentiality, but I think we can help each other understand what's happening. You'll have to sign some documents first, though, and clean yourself up. Miranda can show you to the shower rooms and provide you with fresh clothes. Please read this until she arrives. If you do not sign, we will let you go on your way. But be assured that if you return, you will be arrested, and it will not go well for you. She said the last part of this without overt threat in her tone, just as a matter of fact. She left me to read a document on a clipboard that seemed like a standard NDA, but with severe penalties listed as censure for breaking it. Miranda led me to a basic but clean washroom. As I showered, I contemplated the proposal. I was less than comfortable in what I felt was a genial but still serious confinement, despite Dr. Hurst's pledge that I would be free to go. But free to go to what? An endless string of tormented nights, and a clearly distressed subconsciousness when I slept? There was no decision to be made. An hour later, I was back in the analysis room, the NDA signed, and facing Dr. Hurst once more. As I say, she began, sliding the paperwork into a manila folder, we have been conducting some tests in the area since 1994, when significant seismic activity drew our attention. The Mears Fault runs through Oklahoma, along the northern side of Mears Valley through Comanche and Kiowa counties, and close to where we are. They have experienced minor tremors, not even reaching two on the Richter scale. But in the mid-90s, two level fives happened in quick succession. Prior geological estimates considered such activity to be likely only with several thousands of years apart. She poured a couple of glasses of water from a pitcher and placed one in front of me, before having a sip and continuing. So the geologists and seismologists came here and reassessed the Mears Fault, which hadn't been properly examined since complex seismic modelling emerged in the 1960s. What we found beneath here was a shock. At the edge of the range we could detect, we discovered the top of what appeared to be a vast cavern underground, and I mean vast. We relocated several miles north and west, and 
With intermittent breaks as the height of the cavern roof undulated, the open space beneath Oklahoma revealed itself to be colossal in area. "'That's not all there is, is it?' I said. "'Something else has been going on.' Dr. Hurst nodded. "'Yes. Those initial scientists began to be disturbed by visitors. They weren't regular, but came frequently enough to cause a determined disturbance.' Many got arrested, and they committed most of them under the Mental Health Act. "'What did they want?' I said, feeling on edge. "'That's just it. None of them made much sense, but they all eventually displayed hysterical behaviour as they drew close to the Caddo County mounds. They all ranted the same way you did on the video, almost the same words. Eventually they just lost their minds.' I struggled to digest what she had told me, yet it made sense. If I truly had connected to this place, what is to say that others hadn't also? You geologists seem to have the place pretty well sealed off now, I said. I'm not a geologist, replied Dr. Hurst. I'm a parapsychologist, drafted in from Miskatonic University in Massachusetts. If I can be frank with you— you're a rarity in that you seem coherent, and with your faculties intact. It's clear you have the same psychic connection to this area as the others. You might help us figure out exactly what is going on in Caddo County. The word you mention over and again in the video, and a word screamed out by those preceding you to this place, is not canyon. It is more likely to be canyan. If that's the case, then we are in the proximity of something that will change the world as we know it. I don't understand, I said. If you'll help us with an experiment today, then hopefully we can all understand soon. Six. The Descent into Kenyan The experiment was to be performed under the conditions of hypnosis. I was to be placed into a trance, and then exposed to a limited dose of hydrogen compound gas, triggering a psychotropic state of narcosis. They would hermetically seal the analysis room, to prevent the gas from reaching the other areas of the facility, and a separate voice recorder was to be addressed through a delivery mask to document my experiences whilst under. I would be lightly restrained, in such a way that whilst my consciousness was suspended, I could not freely hurt myself, but could release the clasps when once again lucid. This setup, said Dr. Hurst, would enable her to analyze my apparent psychic connection to Kenyan, which was, according to classified texts held at her university, a realm connected to the ancient cults of Yig and Cthulhu. She said that those ancient and corrupted religious factions were much documented at her faculty, and they had maintained records for over a hundred years at the highest levels of government on the latent threat of those sects on our society. I agreed to the conditions of the experiment, and was placed in a chair with the mask over my face, and restraints loosely applied to my wrists and ankles. I was fitted with an earpiece— through which Dr. Hurst could communicate with me. She and a few members of her team retreated to the other side of the glass door, before a projector shone a circular light in front of my eyes. I recall the soft hiss of gas, and a low voice intoning me through a speaker 
to focus on the light. I've lost the rest of this procedure from memory. All I have now is the playback of that lower-quality tape, which sounds appropriately crackly and distant through the mask, bereft of bass frequencies. To recount those lost minutes as my consciousness projected freely and disastrously down into Kenyan. You should play that tape now, to understand what has happened here today. Yes. Yes, I can hear you. Where am I? I'm somewhere else. I'm in the sky and see the moon. It is beautiful. I see the land far below, little lights of towns like clusters of stars. I drop. I want to drop. I must go lower. Through the clouds. To the ground. Th through the ground. And I am now within the soil. I can feel the coolness of the rock as I drift. It does not stop me. I travel and travel. I'm in a sky again, but it's an underground sky. It's blue everywhere, like a mist. Below the blue air, the ground is black. There are no plants. It is just rock and dirt. There is a light here, but I do not see how. A sort of electric glow in the air. It waves and weaves like an aurora. There are stalactites, like in my dreams. I fly. The space goes on for miles and miles. The sky is truly a sky. I drop to the plain and rush along. Maybe those are towns in the distance. Some small flowers now. And a river. I can feel some life here. But also the end of life. Below there are kinds of fish and snakes... Up above, kinds of birds, but they're not birds. They look... they look wrong. I cannot clearly make any of them out. I travel on. I see fields, and are those people moving closer? They, they are people, and yet they are not. They look human, except, except some of them seem deformed. In some places, they appear to be battling in an exhausted, slow manner. Many are just moving robotically over and over, not applying themselves to any discernible task, just thrashing about. There is a noise here, too. An echo that is constant and loud. It does not appear to be a physical sound. More the wavelength of thoughts. Many thoughts, like static on a radio... It fills this place, that reverberation. I cannot make sense of it. I, I travel on, away from these awful meadows and the lurching of those dead animated puppets. Ahead, a mountain is on the far side of a black bridge. No, no, it is a city. My, my God, it is enormous. The, the static sound is louder here, almost... Deafening. Thoughts. Many thousands of terrified thoughts rising from the space in the city like a million screams. Oh. Here and there are 
clear word in the cacophony. I think this place is called Sash or Sath. I descend through the golden buildings and see a riot of animals in the lanes and plazas. My God, they are blasphemous. Huge, morbid white beasts with horns and elements of the human in their ghastly faces. And they are eating people. There are people down there, many dressed in fine robes, and these awful animals are tearing them apart. The telepathic screams are coming from those victims. Everywhere there is panic as these giant animals run amok. And now... Now... There is a tone I have heard before. That low, guttural rumble from my dreams. That call of the deepest wail in hell. I go down, past those blood-soaked streets, underground once more. I am now in a different place. It is warmer here and red. The air has an infernal color like a photographer's darkroom. There are buildings here, too, but they are different to the blue land above. The assembled blocks of these cyclopean structures are enormous and irregular. I can still hear the faint screams of terror above, projecting through many hundreds of yards of rock, but... Thankfully, it is now a low background clamor. It's like the agitated buzz of a beehive under assault from hornets in another garden. There is no life here. Nothing. Everywhere is rubble and dust spread out like shingle amidst the ruins. This place feels old. Older than I can imagine. There are temples here. Giant black, possibly basalt, cathedrals, ransacked and devastated. Beyond the city, as above in the blue-litten landscape, the land stretches out in each direction. This is a kingdom of ruin. Again, the blaring siren of a guttural host travels up from below, louder now, below this land. I am close to what calls... But I must travel down again. Seven. Sathagua. It is a strange feeling, propelling myself through rock as if it were water. I'm a diver through the fabric of the earth. I'm breaking through now to an open plain, but there is no light down here. I can sense geological shapes, but it is not sight I'm using. I don't know what it is. Nothing at this level is remotely familiar. It is utterly alien. If life exists here, I cannot tell. Nor was a human soul ever meant to be here. The boom of the summons is deafening, and now this is a genuine sound. Whatever I am drawn to, whatever causal power infected my sanity, it is in this place. There! A shard of light in the distance. I glide towards it, 
Part of me feels like a moth, slowly enticed towards a glowing web. I am tiny in this space, and surrounded by an energy both monumental, yet somehow indifferent to my kind. The slice of light seems to steam. In fact, as I draw near, I see that there are two slivers of smoking incandescence. There is a huge backdraft of air as something vast sniffs in my direction. That rumbling cacophony blasts again, the titanic yawn of something ancient and very slow. I perceive a gigantic, couchant shape, many stories high. It is some kind of animal. There are coarse hairs and rudimentary features of a bat, but overwhelmingly the elements are amphibious, like a frog or toad particularly that mountainous round head slashed within which are those glowing cuts, somnolent eyes. The towering face turns to me, like a colossal radar dish slowly pointing towards a speck of interest in space. The eyes slowly open, and I gaze into the phosphorus, eon-forged stare of an undoubted god. These are the eyes I saw in that accursed projection, atop the black stone. You! blasts the slothful, guttural voice of a thousand dead stars. I try to speak, but I am transfixed with an absolute, all-encompassing terror. I am but a dust mote faced with a comet. You came to Sathagur. Good. I am so very hungry. The god shifts on its immense haunches as the surrounding realm echoes with its movement. It reaches out a titanic arm as thick as a hundred redwood trees. The breadth of the palm of its scaly hand obliterates my entire horizon. The hand arrives to me but goes through my vision and I'm inside the mass and sinew of its forearm. It takes minutes for the limb to reverse be retracted and settle back. Sathagur angles its head slightly upwards. I see, it rumbles. There is no mutual connection to be found here. I cannot begin to comprehend a being such as this. There are no secrets to learn, no veil of life to see behind, no learning unless it is the knowledge that we humans are utterly insignificant to greater power such as this. The link of the black stone was a simple one. It was of a predator locating its prey. We continue to look at each other. With a blast of fetid air, the deity shifts its mass and slumps back into the gloom. The immeasurable toad-like head slips from sight into the shadows, so that just those burning eyes remain visible, two furious suns slowly being covered again by descending great canopy eyelids. Go forth, it thunders. I take it as instruction until I see movement far below, a shift of black upon black. There is a crucible down there, a kind of wide basin. Something has emerged upon those final spoken words, something that now unfurls and rushes upwards. A horror grips me. I do not want to see what this is, and I will not wait for it to reach me, despite my hitherto invulnerable state. 
I glimpse an ever-shifting serpentine chaos, a black morass of matter and hate rushing upwards. I careen into the roof of this lightless netherworld I was never meant to see. I cross quickly through rock, but know that I am pursued through the slightest of fissures and the slimmest of gaps in the blackened strata. Eight. The Attack There is no more to the experiment's tape, so I will resume on the desk recorder. I do not know how long it took me to break free from the trance, for there was no direct instruction from Dr. Hurst to do so. Perhaps it was when the psychotropic gas timed out that I returned to consciousness. I do not know. I first noticed an undulating tone, soon to be recognized as a siren wailing throughout the facility, and other sounds from beyond the glass. Cries! Loosening my restraints, I slowly regained my feet and walked over to the observation window, and beyond, a panorama of hell. At least a dozen bodies littered the central foyer, twisted into nightmarish shapes and in hideous states of disrepair. Dr. Hurst's clipboard was bloodied on the floor, but I couldn't see her. I recognized her assistant, Miranda, cowering behind a desk with one of the dark-suited men I'd seen before. Both looked utterly terrified, insane with fear. Beyond them, a black, formless shape seethed and undulated around the desks and equipment, hunting. That was an hour ago. Miranda and the man have now joined the others in death. There was no escape. The monstrosity eventually located them, and there was nowhere for them to go. It was too fast. I watched as this shifting black nightmare formed a mouth and enveloped the man from head and flailing arms to twitching legs. I turned away as it then bore down on Miranda. Her appalling cries haunt my last hours here. The black, flowing predator is now trying to get into this room. It covers the window and stares at me with occasional terrible eyes that surface and then submerge. It has extruded itself at the edges into a score of tiny tendrils, probing the sealant and vents, tapping at the walls. As isolated as this room is, eventually it will find a way in. I will not escape." So I leave this recording as a warning to others, and two specific pleas. Stay away from the mounds. Destroy the black stone. <laughs>